Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Osban, here with my friend, the Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yivamot, daf Gimel, page three. Well, yesterday was a definitely head-spinning daf. Uh, today, I think, feels a little bit more uh, what we're used to in Gemara passages. Um, and so we've picked out a couple that we want to review today. So the Gemara first begins by sort of doing a deep dive into the, trying to figure out how did they get to the order of the 15 Orios that they list? Um, and they go through a whole bunch of learning about how, why did they start with wife, sister, and maybe not some of the other Orios. Um, and after they go through that discussion, the Gemara wants to do some analysis of the Mishnah's actual language. And I want to focus on two of the comments that they make here. Why did the Tana teach, right, when he says these 15 women don't have to do and, and their co-wives are exempt from Yibum? He uses the language of potrot. Litne osrot. Why doesn't he teach that actually they're forbidden to do it, right? So potrot basically sort of uh, says in a way that the Tsarot, these co-wives, are actually freed from of Yibum, but they're eligible for Yibum if the Yavam would want to marry them. Like, that's sort of what the implication is. But that's really not true. It's not that they're potrot, they're osrot, they're actually forbidden to the Yavam. And so the question is, why doesn't it use that stronger language of osrot? It says, eat osrot havi amina, if he said forbid or forbid their code wives, right, I might have thought that they were forbidden to any of them. It's forbidden to any of them to do yibum, but actually what? She would actually have to perform um, chalitza. And so the, the Tana is actually uh, teaching us uh, otherwise, because in other words, the word osrot, right, maybe would have implied or, or given a hint to that the co-wives of these Orayot are forbidden for Yibam, but it wouldn't say anything about the Chalitza because it would be like, oh, there's nothing wrong to do Chalitza. Like, they're just a sword to do Yibam, but, you know, they could do Chalitza. But Potrot says, no, it's that there's no Yibam or Chalitza at all. They're, they're just exempt from the whole process. They don't have to do anything. Whereas by saying Osrot to Yibam, seems to imply maybe they would actually have to do chalitza. Then the Gemara says, So then why couldn't it just say, right? Just let it use the word asurot, but make sure that it's connected to both yibum and to chalitza. So the Gemara basically said, you know, what, you know, what, what wrong would basically uh, be done by doing chalitza, right? Maybe, you, you can't say that it's a sword. It's not a sword to do chalitza. So the Gemara says, Al-Malo, right? Why should chalitza not be forbidden? If you say she can perform chalitza, then it must be that she can also do, uh, that she can also do yibum. So in other words, if let's say the voluntary chalitza was allowed in these, in these types of erva, uh, situ- in these erva uh, cases, Right, somebody might actually think that yibum was also an option, um, and then maybe he would actually come to do yibum with one of the co-wives of the erba, which is actually totally forbidden to him, as if it was his brother's wife. So therefore, um, it you know to say that the erba uh, forbid you know forbid 
you know, so you could really say that it forbids. Like, actually, you should say it's so strong. Maybe that actually would have been the better thing to do because it would have made how strong the case is that even chalitza cannot be done. So now they're going to give a totally different reason for this wording of potrot versus osrod. Kevan de makom mitzvah who asira since it's only in the situation of a mitzvah of yibam that the co-wife of the erva is forbidden to a person, but outside the situation of a mitzvah of yibam, she would be permitted. That's why it says peturot. And here is really a very, very interesting chiddush. What they're basically saying is, is that when the erva and her co-wife basically have to do yibam, right? The erva, this erva relationship of these 15 categories that are in the Mishnah basically exempts the erva and the co-wife from having to do right? And they're basically uh, forbidden to the avam, the, even this co-wife, as if the co-wife was also the brother's wife, as if the co-wife was also, uh, was also a, uh, you know, was, was, was the erva itself. But if they had used the word osrot and not pituroth, right, then what we might have thought is, is that the erva makes the, the co-wife basically not eligible for yibum, right, that there's this sort of like special prohibition to her. But we also would have thought that the, the erva makes sort of an erva prohibition on the co-wife um, just by being married to the same man. And, and, and the co-wife is also not eligible. But this is actually not true because if it was a non-Yibum situation, there would be cases where that co-wife actually could marry the Yabam. It's just that in the case of <coughs> Yibum, they are not allowed to get married to each other. So I thought this was like a very, very interesting chiddush, uh, right? Again, I'm going to say it one more time. It's only in the case of Yibum when there's the erva and a co-wife that they both become patur from having to do yibum or chalitza to the yavam. But if there was another situation somehow where it happened, that the tzara, that this co-wife had an opportunity to marry the yavam, not in the context of yibum, they actually would be allowed to marry. And that's why it had to use the word potrot, because it's only within the context of yibum and chalitza that that marriage cannot take place. So that's a very, very interesting chiddush. Then the Gemara wants to go on to ask another question about the wording, right? So we mentioned this yesterday when we talked about the Mishnah. Why does it say, right? Why doesn't it just teach about Yibum? Why do you have to say anything about Chalitza? If the Tana had only taught about Yibum, I might have said, she might perform chalitza even though she does, she's not subject to yibum. And we learn otherwise. And so now they're going to give a general principle, which actually later on in the Gemara, we'll find that is not entirely true. But for this stuff, it's going to be true, which is the principle that whoever is subject to yibum is also subject to chalitza. But whoever is not subject to Yibum is not subject to Chalitza. And so that's why it had that particular wording to basically uh, teach us that, you know, if you if you can't do Yibum, you also cannot do Chalitza. 
Um, now, where this gets confusing is later on the Gemara, we are going to learn about some cases where Yibum is not an option. And we sort of uh, say, no, the only option is Chalitza. But those are cases where it's not straightforward. There's a doubt about whether the case actually qualifies for Yibum. So we're going to learn those cases later. But the general principle is, if Yibum's then Chalitza is an option. If Chalitza is an option, then Yibum is an option. They cannot be mutually exclusive in any way. And then the Gemara goes on to say, So then let the Tana teach this is what, right? Um, and right? Or, right, so in other words, the Yibum should come before Chalitza, uh, or just teach Chalitza alone and don't even mention Yibum. Why is the order Chalitza and Yibum? The Gemara answers, Abba Shaohi, this is a particular opinion of Avashel, and so this is also a very, very uh, um, principle, which we're not going to actually get to until Daf Lamed Tet Amud Bet. And basically, Avashel had a principle where he felt that the, the Yavam can only marry his brother's wife if it's with the purest of intentions. But if the brother's, you know, brother does or fulfills the mitzvah of, because he's attracted to, to the, you know, his brother's wife, a- anything like that, right? It's not for the purest intention, right? Uh, according to Abba Shaul, then it actually would be prohibited for that marriage to take place. And so what basically Abba Shaul is going to say is nobody's really capable to do this with the purest of intention. So therefore... Actually, everybody really should just be doing chalitza. I found this comment that we'll have to explore it more when we get to Daf Lamatet. So I sort of want to just hold it and we'll explore it later. See that by the time we get to Abba Shaul, there like seems to be a little discomfort with this mitzvah, right? Like basically the notion here is you have a mitzvah that's given in the Torah, but Abba Shaul saying nobody can actually do this mitzvah correctly. No one can do Yibum with good intentions. So you're going to automatically go to Chalitza. So as we sort of construct and try to understand what exactly is this mitzvah of Yibum, which again, I think to modern learners seems very, very foreign. It's interesting that this opinion of Shaul, which basically says no one really can do Yibum correctly and everyone sort of should just be doing Chalitza already appears on the second tab. I feel like it becomes uh, the fact that intent kicks in as opposed to being simply a matter of providing for the, a child for the name of the brother and um, the dead brother I, I think is interesting right I think you're right there's definitely like some some shift in the comfort level with what this is all about um I want to reiterate I think at the end of the day I'll just say one thing before you go because like are people really going to agree to do this type of marriage if there isn't some form of compatibility, if there isn't some form of attraction. Like sure, but Abba Shaul like, doesn't have to be, we don't all have to follow Abba Shaul, meaning. But, but I think that's what Abba Shaul, again, we'll get to it later, but I think that's kind of what Abba Shaul's picking up on. Like, it's supposed to be sort of a very transactional type of marriage. But I think Abba Shaul, this opinion is sort of saying in a way like, marriage cannot ever be totally transactional. There has to be some intent, some attraction, some something there. But we'll we'll get to this later on. Right, and That's then you're and then you're into the into the arayot category. I understand. Um, I want to just uh, I want to 
comment. I think you pointed this out at the beginning, Dana, but I want to note it again that like for all that we said that charts are your friend, I feel like the parts that we're talking about today are not the parts that you really need the chart in the same way. The first part of this daf, daf Gimel, I also found to be a little bit, you know, we need the charts. We need, it's a little head spinning in terms of tracking through each case by case from the 15 cases, right? But then you, when you ask, like, why does it say Poter instead of Oser? Like, that is a regular Gemara question. That's not a Yavamot question per se. And I feel like it should be reassuring to all of our co-learners and perhaps to us as well that some of what we're doing here is the same kind of analysis that we expect from the Gemara. And, and we can at least, like, you know, in as much as we're going to spend a lot of time tracing through cases, we also have the ability then to say, oh, they also need to figure out what, are the, what does the language mean, what does it imply, and so on. Um, I'm going to take another piece here on Amud Bet that does a comparable kind of analysis. Namely, the Gemara says, shesh arayot chaburot The Gemara says, this Mishnah with its list of 15, 15 cases of potential arayot situations that the co-wives exempt each other from, right? Exempt each other for yibum from. Um, the Gemara wants to know, well, what about the other six arayot that are much more stringent than these? Right, so some of the we're gonna see these later. We're gonna come to what are these stringent cases of Arayot. We're gonna come see it in um what daf is it on? I'm gonna Yud Yud Aleph maybe? I don't remember. Something like that. But the the issue is here, you know, like there there are people that you could never that you oh, that it's are, on that are not, it's Yud Gimel on the back. It's a Yud Gimel, thank you. Sorry, thank yes. you. Okay. So Yatsu Shesha so I'm gonna read some from the text and we'll pick it apart then afterwards. Yatsu Shesh Arayot Khamarut Meelu. So the Gemara says, well, straight up, we have this whole issue of marrying, or or I'm sorry, having Yibum with an Arayot relationship is, we don't have to pay attention to the other six. The only one that matters is the brother, right? Because that's the case of Yibum, where the, where the, dead brother's brother, meaning, right, the dead man's brother, is going to do Yibum, and if there's some other, like, if there's an uncle who could be an Arayo case, it's not gonna, it would not fulfill Yibum. So we don't, the Mishnah doesn't talk about it because it's irrelevant, because those cases would never have been an issue of Yibum to begin with. Meaning, once you've got a case where it's impossible to marry the brother, meaning to do, right, then then the the co-wives would be permitted anyway because it's not a case of marrying the brother. I don't know if I've said that as well as it as clearly as it is in my head, but I I think that these six cases are then you know left out so to speak. Well, they just could never happen. That's the point because it's like right. it, it just could never happen. So I think I think that's like the Gemara's the Gemara's question of why are the those six cases not here is I would say for the sake of thoroughness. But the Gemara knows, right? That like it they they're not here because they make no sense. They would never have been here. I I think if I think that's a fair thing to say. Yes? yes? I would agree. Yes, they just couldn't be here. Okay. I mean and then the the Gemara here, meaning on Amabet, when it says even a little bit before where I read, Yeah, Right, the whole question it raises at first as a question. Maybe that should be a legitimate case, a legitimate concern. And then, as I say, the Gemara says, like, 
no, don't be ridiculous. They would never have been here. They're just not relevant. Um, okay. And then the Gemara asks another question, which I find to be very interesting, which shows up, I think, any time that there's a discussion of mitzvot lotase, a, a, a negative commandment, which has a ma'asa, which has some act as- associated with it. The Gemara asks, as harasha manu, onesh minayin. We understand that there's a prohibition stated in the Torah that says, you know, this is prohibited. But where do we have another verse to teach the punishment for one who would violate this lotase, this mitzvah lotase, this negative commandment? Amakra, so then the Gemara answers, Amakra, ki kol asher yaseh mikol hatoi vot vagomer. Meaning, this is a verse from Vayikra. And you said Yudchet yesterday, Yudana, you were right, right? It's these, this is the list of the Arayot relationships is in the eight, 18th chapter of the book of Leviticus. And we have a verse that says, Kikol asher yasemi anyone who does any of these abominations, right? Any of these um, illicit uh, relationships, right? So that's, that's going to be the. That's the punishment, right? I just want to make sure that I say this correctly. We already know the Azhara. We already know that it's a prohibited thing. And this is where they're going to derive the the punishment from it. So we have here, right? We have the, the it's very brief, but the Gemara is making sure that we know that both the, the prohibition is stated in the Torah and there's a verse from which the fact that there is a punishment can be learned as well. Otherwise, you know, the fact, the phenomenon of having a mitzvah lotase without having a verse that also confirms the punishment um, just doesn't work, right? That's why the Gemara throughout the all different areas of halacha will ask exactly the same question, right? We know what we've got the prohibition, but where do we have a verse for the onesh, uh, for the punishment? And so, I again, I, I, I don't know how often this kind of issue would have come up in a practical way in terms of punishment, but they're crossing their T's and dotting their I's. This stuff to me is, you know, making sure that they're being thorough, at least this part of the Amud that I'm talking about, to make sure we understand that those six Arayot could never have been part of this story, to understand that, yes, yes, there is a verse that teaches the punishment, and and now we can move on, right? Now we're ready for Amud, uh, yeah, for Daf Dalad. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting also. The Mishnah here, or the Masachat began with this, like, very confusing Mishnah, and now it's almost like the Gemara is coming to give us like all the background that we needed to know ahead of time. What are the psukim? How are the psukim learned? How did they establish any of this to begin with? Like, there's a lot of uh, midrash halacha here that sort of is a background where you sort of would have been like, I should have known this first before I even got to this Mishnah. Right, right. This is, you know, if we have talked about the different ordering of the Masechtot that we saw in Moed, and sometimes they seem to be in a like a very tight, organized way of presentation from the beginning. And sometimes we said, why are we starting here? So I think we understand why we're starting with Yavamon. And I think we understand why we're starting. I'm not sure we understand yet why we're starting with the 15 co-wife cases, right? Meaning we can justify it, but we don't have an organizing system yet. So, of so my theory on why some days. Starts, so my theory about why it starts with this Mishnah is actually that again, the whole concept of Yibam is that it allows a typical erva to be permitted in a particular set of circumstances. So therefore, the first Mishnah basically deals with, okay, you think we know that erva is going to be permitted, but what we're really going to do is give you all these other cases that are sort of like erva by association, 
don't think Ibram's going to allow that. So it's like right. almost trying to tell you, it's emphasizing what an exception Yibum actually is. Okay, I can accept that. And I'll tell you another thought, which I saw from Rabbi Johnny Solomon, who's a friend of our podcast and a friend of ours. Um, he said, and he also has very wise thoughts on the daf just about every day. He says, I, I don't know if this is what he said. I gleaned this from something that he wrote, that a lot, the, the nature of Yavamot is about the nature of relationships within the family. And if we start paying attention to, you know, what is the dynamic here between all of these co-wives, right? How many co-wives really are there? And how, who are you coming into the dynamic that has co-wives, right? What is your place in this, in this, you know, multi-pronged relationship? I think that that is a really interesting way to say, this is how we're starting Seder Nashim. This is how we're starting Seder to understand, like, it, it goes beyond the, what did you call it? Like the, the, oh, what did you call it? How, what's the, what did you see the nature of the relationship? The relate, nature of a Hebrew relationship being very like programmed or something, right? Yeah, you had a better word. it's transactional. It's like transactional. Sure right, it's transactional. Right, but so then if you take that step back and say, wait, but who are these people at the table, so to speak, right? And now we have like drama, right? It's gotta be a soap opera every time. And that, I think, then forces us to start paying attention. And I think that we're going to do this as we go through the Masachet. So what is the nature of these different kinds of actual relationships between the people who are all around the table in this kind of weird marriage, not marriage, prohibited for marriage, maybe just exempt from not marriage, you know, from Yibum, whatever, all of these different kinds of dynamics are going to, how we're, the question is, how are they going to play out? I find this, so again, I can't say, I don't know exactly, I'm sorry, Johnny, I don't know exactly what he said in the great detail because he, because I saw it very quickly in passing, but something stayed with me to the idea that um, beyond the transactional, we have a real definition of what does it mean to be this kind of family before our face. You know, we're going to see it as we go. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hodgman website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.